Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we have your word, the Bible, the word of God. Lord, would you transform us wherever we are right now in your story, whatever hearts are feeling right now, whatever our minds are going through, would you still it and would you help us to focus on you, to know that you provide, you've always provided, you've always been there, you've always loved. Would we know that truth and experience it for ourselves? In your name we pray. Amen. So we are cruising through Genesis. I don't know how many weeks we're in now, but we're almost halfway. There's about 50 chapters in Genesis. And uh, Genesis is written by this man named Moses, who we will learn about hopefully sometime in 2020. But this man named Moses, he's writing this book. He's writing this book to these people called the Israelites who have just been freed by God out of slavery in Egypt. And so right now Israel, as Genesis is being written, they're wandering in the wilderness. And so Moses is writing this letter to them to help them to remember who this God is, that there is one God. There's a God that loves you. There's a God that's always been with you. There's a God that provides. This is the God whom you serve even in the desert. So this letter, this, this book was written to encourage the Israelites and in, in what God has done and what God continues to do. God provides. And in chapter 22, we're going to hear a little bit about that. Verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. I'm going to pause there for a second. Abraham is this man that God has had this relationship with. He's, he's made a promise to Abraham that through you, Abraham, I'm going to reverse a curse that has come upon the world. And the curse is people have rebelled against a good and perfect and loving God. They have chosen their own way. They have chosen to be gods themselves. They've chosen their own path. They've rejected God. They have rebelled against God. And generation after generation after generation, they continue to rebel. This is true of us. This is true of some of the first people we read about in Genesis. But God makes his promise to Abraham. He says, through you, Abraham, in chapter 12, you will be a blessing to the world. Through you, I will make a descendant as numerous as the stars, but through you, your family will reverse this curse, this rebellion we call sin. So this is who Abraham is. So sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. He said, Abraham, God called. And note that word tested. God tested. It summarizes the rest of chapter 22. This is a test. It summarizes this whole passage and it clarifies the meaning about everything that I'm about to read. And so Abraham says, yes. He replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah, and go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. Now, burnt offering... This is something that involves taking an animal, typically a lamb, 
or ram, you would take this animal, you'd cut the animal's throat, you would cut off its body parts, and then you would throw it into a fire where the fire would consume it. That's what a burnt offering is. So God is asking, right here in verse 2, take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, go to the land of Moriah and go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. This is an animal. Isaac is is a human. But human sacrifice was something that existed back then. It's not something instituted by God, but in the places where Abram has been, in a place called Ur, U-R, yes, that was a place, Ur, Ur, it's a good name, Ur. Ur, and in Canaan, people practiced human sacrifice. So people would have been familiar with human sacrifice. This wasn't outside the realm of this, is, this doesn't happen. They've seen it. Even if it repulsed them, it happened. So God was asking Abraham to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering with his own hands. So this command went against Abraham's common sense. It went against his natural affections. And it went against a lifelong hope of having your son, your only son, to pass down your lineage, take over the family business. So, so, so during this time, if you were the firstborn son, it was very important. It's like in, in Chinese culture where the firstborn son is to take over the family business, is to take care of the family, is to take care of your parents when they're older. There's this expectation for the son to carry on your name. So you want to have boys in your family if you're Chinese. And now I have three girls. So my family's always like, when's that boy coming? I was like, I don't know. I don't know how to control these things. But <laughs> here they are. here's three girls. So the firstborn is, is very important. And what people could do during this time is they could really, really almost overlove their first son, almost I'd, like give too much affection or too much care, and you almost make them like, a god. Like your son has become your god and it's like idolatry. So this was, this was happening in this culture. And so God is asking for Abraham to sacrifice his first son. And as people are reading or listening to this, they think that is an extraordinary ask. And how did Abraham respond? It He didn't doubt or question the command. He actually responded promptly. Verse 3. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told his servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther We will worship there, and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders, while he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them walked on together. Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood, the boy said. 
But where is the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid on him the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. The death of Isaac appears to contradict God's promise to Abraham. This promise that you're going to have lots of descendants. How can you have descendants if my son is dead? What about this promise? This promise from Genesis 12, 1 to 3, that you would make a great nation out of Abraham, that you would bless him, and his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. How, do you, how are you going to do that without Isaac? Yet Abraham displayed unimaginable faith right here. Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac showed his commitment to God. And how could Abraham do this? We have no idea in reading the story how Abraham was feeling. You have no idea. I don't know if any of you are watching the show The Mandalorian. It's a Star Wars story. Anyways, he wears a helmet. And in every scene, you're just like, you're not sure if he's like really happy, really sad. You just, you have no idea. So with Abraham, you don't know what he's feeling. You don't know what's going through his head. But there's a little bit of insight we find in a book called Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter, uh, chapter 11, verses 17 to 19. It's giving us a little bit of what's going on in Abraham's mind. as why he's willing to sacrifice his son. It's because he believes something. He believed that God would provide a way out. So in verse 17 in chapter 11 of Hebrews, it says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So Abraham so utterly believed in God's promise, that God has been a promise-keeping God, that you've rescued me from so many different situations. You've always been there. Even when I didn't understand it, he had so much faith in this that he thought, you're asking me to sacrifice my son. You must, you're going to raise him from the dead. You're going to resurrect him in some way. You're going to do something. This is what Abraham believed. He believed that God would provide. He had faith that God would provide. And Abraham's faith resulted in obedience. So up goes the knife. And we go to verse 11. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yirah. Some translations say Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. 
On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God provided a ram. God provided a sacrifice. And so the outcome makes it clear that God never intended for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. This was a test. This was a test. The very first verse in this chapter, this is a test. Abraham didn't know that. Isaac didn't know that. And this test does not conflict with God's good character. There was no intention of killing the son. We continue in verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says. Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son. I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. Then they returned to the servants and traveled back to Beersheba, where Abraham continued to live. Soon after this, Abraham heard that Milcah, his brother's Nahor's wife, had born Nahor, eight sons. The oldest was named Uz. The next oldest was Buzz, Uz and Buzz, followed by Kemuel, the ancestor of the Armeans, Kesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jedelpah, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. In addition to these eight sons from Milcah, Nahor had four other children from his concubine, Ryuma. Their names were Teba, Geham, Tehash, and Makah. And Abraham continued to believe that God provides even, which we'll read in verse, or in chapter 23, when his wife Sarah dies. Abraham has this unwavering belief, this unwavering faith that God still provides. So what I'm going to do in chapter 23 is I'm going to just read it through, verse 1 to 20, and I'll explain what's going on, and I'll explain what happened in verse 22 with this the seemingly sacrifice of, of Isaac. So here we are, chapter 23. When Sarah was 127 years old, yes, 127 years old, if you've never read the Bible before and you read that, you think, this book is made up. But if you think about it, when God created people and everything was perfect, you had no distortion of your... Uh, genomes, there's no disease, there's nothing. You, you are essentially perfect. You should live forever. But as sin crept in and generation after generation, you didn't live as long. And here we are, 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, now called Hebron, in the land of Canaan. There Abraham mourned and wept for her. Then leaving her body, he said to the Hittite elders, Here I am, a stranger and a foreigner among you. Please sell me a piece of land so I can give my wife a proper burial. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Listen, my lord, you are an honored prince among us. Choose the finest of our tombs and bury her there. No one here will refuse to help you in this way. Then Abraham bowed low before the Hittites and said, Since you are willing to help me in this way, be so kind as to ask Ephron, son of Zohar, to let me buy his cave at Machpelah. 
down at the end of his field. I will pay the full price in the presence of witnesses, so I will have a permanent burial place for my family. Ephraim was sitting there among the others, and he answered Abraham as the others listened, speaking publicly before all the Hittite elders of the town. No, my lord, he said to Abraham, please listen to me. I will give you the field and the cave. Here in the presence of my people, I give it to you. Go and bury your dead. Abraham again bowed low before the citizens of the land, and he replied to Ephron as everyone listened. No, listen to me. I will buy it from you. Let me pay the full price for the field so I can bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, please listen to me. The land is worth 400 pieces of silver. But what is that between friends? Go ahead and bury your dead. So Abraham agreed to Ephron's price and paid the amount he had suggested. 400 pieces of silver, weighed according to the market standard. The Hittite elders witnessed the transaction. So Abraham bought the the plot of land belonging to Ephron at Machpelah near Mamre. This included the field itself, the, the cave that was in it, and all the surrounding trees. It was transferred to Abraham as his permanent possession in the presence of the Hittite elders at the city gate. Then Abraham buried his wife Sarah there in Canaan, in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, also called Hebron. So the field and the cave were transferred from the Hittites to Abraham for use as a permanent burial place. Abraham is trying to buy a piece of land, which he does successfully. The transaction goes accordingly. The guy says, hey, the, the price is 400 pieces of silver. But you've got to also know that it's not like 400 loonies. It's not like a, a, this 400 units. Like you don't have coins until later. It's actually a weight. It's translated that there's like it's like a 400 weight unit. And that's a lot. And so when he's like, oh, what's, what's it between friends? $450 million kind of thing. Like he's extorting Abraham, basically. And Abraham actually agrees to pay it publicly in front of the elders, in front of people at the full price. He agrees to do that. Why? Why is this transaction happening? Why does he want this cave? What's up with this field? Abraham was so sure that God would provide this land, this land that he's in for his descendants, that he wanted Sarah's remains to be there when the people got there. Because he believed a promise. He believed a promise by God that he would inherit this land. It's in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18. It says, So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have given this land to you, to your descendants, all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. Abraham purchased some of this land with this promise in mind. It was like a, it was like a purchase of faith that his descendants, that God promised, like, you're going to raise up my people and my descendants, and they're going to live in this land. I'm going to buy a burial, a tomb for my wife here in this land that you've promised me. And by faith, he does that, even though he can't see tomorrow or what's going to happen this was an incredible act of faith it was a public display of God's promise even if Abraham can't see tomorrow and there's this bumper sticker I saw or something or a poster maybe and it says this you may not know 
what tomorrow holds, but you have peace knowing who holds tomorrow. I'm going to say it again. You may not know what tomorrow holds. Tomorrow. What are we doing tomorrow? How do we know that? We don't. Only God does. Only God knows tomorrow. But you have peace knowing who holds tomorrow. So we say, if we're a believer, Lord, I don't know what tomorrow brings. I don't know what my future brings, but I know you're there. You've gone before me. You hold tomorrow. I'm sick. I don't have money. My family's falling apart. But God, you hold tomorrow and you hold me. That is peace. What do these stories mean for us? What is this sacrifice? What is this future land? When, when God provided a sacrifice in the place of Isaac, when he provided a ram, this is what some Christian scholars believe introduces a concept. It's called substitutionary atonement. Now, substitutionary atonement is that there was a substitute who has died in the place of someone else or something has died as a substitute for something else. An atonement means a payment has been fully accepted and paid. So when you hear the word atonement, it's A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T, you can think at that one moment it was paid for. So a substitutionary atonement is that there has been a sacrifice, a substitute on something's behalf, and at that one moment was paid in full. Instead of Isaac being sacrificed, there was a substitutionary atonement, the ram. The ram died as a substitute for Isaac. And God provides a substitutionary atonement for us with Jesus Christ at the cross on our behalf, Jesus, in a book called John, chapter 1, verse 29, it says this, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If we parallel these two stories, we have Isaac. Isaac's father walks with his son, his only son, his only begotten son, to the place where he would be sacrificed, carrying wood on his own back to the altar. This is the son who Abraham loves. And Isaac goes. And we parallel that with Jesus. God the Father is taking his only begotten son to a hill, carrying that old, rugged, wooden cross on his back to Calvary to pay for the sins of the world. This parallel is not getting past, well, it's getting past some, but there's an understanding here. When, when, the right, when Moses is talking about Isaac, the son whom you love, your only begotten son, bring him. This is very similar to a very famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that anyone who would believe in him 
would not perish, would not die, would not be condemned, would not be judged, but have everlasting life. This, John 3.16, is referencing this story. Jesus Christ was our substitutionary atonement. And at that one moment, Christ paid for our sins in full. And by faith in Jesus, you are welcomed into a future kingdom. This future kingdom that Abraham anticipated. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 to 10, it says this, And even when he reached the land God promised him, Abraham, he lived there by faith, for he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to the city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. If you're a Christian, you are looking beyond the material. You're looking beyond the now. You're looking beyond your own family into something eternal. Because everything around us will fade. Our vision's going to start going, if it hasn't already. Your hearing's going to start going. Our bodies will fade. This will all crumble. But it says Abraham, he was anticipating a future kingdom, a city designed and built by God. This is the Christian anticipation. We don't put our hope in the stock market. We don't put our hope in Trudeau or Trump or kings and princes of this world. Our kingdom is of a different land. We are foreigners here. We're ambassadors. We're just visiting here, telling others about the king and about another kingdom and about how someone has substituted your sin We have the story of Sarah who died. And Sarah, her name used to be Sarai, and God changed it to Sarah, which means princess. There was this promise in her name that her descendants would be kings, that kings would come from her descendants. And we, we see that's true. As you read the Bible, this one story, we see that kings come. But ultimately, we see that the king of kings has come through Sarah. The king of kings is Jesus Christ. God provided a way out in Jesus. Do we believe this? Do we believe that God has provided a way out? Because he will test us. And this is the one application I want us to take, is that God tests us. God tests you, God tests me. Abraham was tested. Christians will be tested. And God is the tester and the provider. The God who tests is also the God who provides. And growth in our faith involves testing. And tests cause us to stretch and to grow. And Abraham's faith was stretched to its limit. There is no greater thing that God could have asked of Abraham. Yet he held firm. And now we read the story as one of the greatest examples of faith in all of the Bible. And so the way we increase in faith is to exercise that faith. And this is the process of how we increase in our faith and how we exercise our faith. God comes to us through his word. We are to read it. We are to try to understand it. 
in community and as individuals and prayerfully engage in God's word. So God comes to us through the word of God and we are challenged to believe it. It sounds very simple, but this is the walk of the Christian. That this book is how we operate in life. When it says be humble towards people, be humble at all times, be prayerful. Husbands, treat your wives like this. Wives, treat your husbands like this. Children, treat your parents like this. Parent, and vice versa. There, there's ways in which we are to live and we are to believe. This is true of everyone, Christian or not. It's, this challenges you. This book says there is one God and you are not that God. Nor is Allah, nor is Buddha, nor is the God of the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons. There is one God you are to follow. So God comes to us through his word and we are challenged to believe it. And when we believe his word, he's testing us by stretching our faith so it can grow into greater depth than before. If you can think of when you were first a Christian, if you're a believer here, that you had a certain amount of faith and as life happens to you, God is testing you through some difficult times, your faith grows in greater depth than before. And God is calling each of us to give up our Isaacs. The things that we are most, the things that are most precious to us that is not God. He's asking us to give those things up. And we need to understand that God is Yahweh, Yira, from Genesis 22:14. God provides. And in this life, there will be highs and lows there's going to be ups and downs, but God grows our faith incrementally so that we're empowered to give up the Isaacs to the God who provides. Because he's always provided. He gave us life. He gave us breath. He now gives us salvation through his son Jesus. He provides for every believer. Abraham, he lost his beloved wife Sarah. But death is meant to make us look beyond the present material world to the glories of heaven, to the eternal foundations provided by God. And at death, and if you've lived long enough, you've experienced a friend die, a loved one, it's, it's, a, it's an enemy. Death is an enemy. And at death, more than ever, we declare our hope that we have a hope beyond the grave. That this is not what we live for. It is not the here and the now, but there's a future hope that determines how we live here and now. And therefore, we accept this challenge from a book called Colossians, which the Women's Bible Study is going through each Friday. It's from chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. It says, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. And so if you've embraced this truth that God has provided this amazing salvation for you, 
then we are to be like Abraham, that by faith we invest in the promise, that we give generously of our possessions, of our wealth, for the preaching of the word of God to the ends of the earth. We want to see disciples made all over Whitehorse, all over Yukon, all around the world. We want to see disciples made, investing our time and our whole lives in the expanse of his kingdom. We're not here to expand the Northern Collective or our denomination. We're to expand a greater understanding of the truth found in God's word. And it's not just the word of God. We are to encounter the God of the word so that we can bring it to the nations, to our friendships, to our family members who do not know Jesus. We invest in kingdom expansion. And when we do this, we declare by faith that we are recipients, that we are heirs of God's promise. Despite our circumstance, we trust in the God that provides, who has always provided, who has always been there for his own glory and for our joy. Amen.